Hi everyone, it's Erin recording from News and Arts. I'm very excited to uh, welcome Carmen Logie, um, also known as Dr. Logie, am I right? <laughs> sure, Carmen is fine. <laughs> Carmen, you have so many titles, I don't know how to narrow it down, but we'll go with Associate Professor at the University of Toronto Factor uh, in Wintash, Faculty of Social Work and a Canada researcher. Yes, that's good. <laughs> that's good. That works for now. Uh, there's so much we can talk with what you do. I definitely admire and uh, respect all the work that you do. Uh, should we talk stigma today? Sure, let's do it. All right. Um, maybe you can give us a little bit of your background and entry into the field that you're in currently. Sure. I think when people ask me how I got into stigma research, I take them back to 1994. Mm -hmm. So in 1994, this is going to age me, I was an undergrad at University of Toronto, and somebody in my class said, do you want to volunteer at the Wellesley Hospital, which no longer exists right. in downtown Toronto? I was 19, and I was like, okay, sure. You know, I'm just getting to know Toronto. I'm from a small town. And when I walked onto the that AIDS floor, it really was a life-changing experience. So for the listeners, we didn't have good medis medicine to treat people living with HIV until 1997. So in 1994, people were, were in the hospital pretty much dying. And as a volunteer, I was like asked to, you know, if somebody wanted a newspaper, I'd go get the newspaper and read it if they needed help reading it, or I would help feed, you know, people dessert, help the nurses, or sometimes I would just sit there. But what I was really struck by was how many people had no visitors. So here people were dying, right. and um, some of them are so young, and had no visitors, and it was because of the stigma around HIV and AIDS, and also at that time, as in Toronto today, most people living with HIV were gay men, so a lot of them, um, because of homophobia, were disowned from their families. And so... It just struck me, and I've never sort of forgotten that feeling of surprise and sadness that people could be at the last um, days of their life and be alone. And so that really got me into the field of HIV, where I started looking at stigma, and then it sort of expanded from there. That's amazing. And, and you do so much work. So you currently work in HIV and STI uh, prevention, testing, and care. But you've done this work in Canada, Uganda, and Jamaica with different groups. So we're talking refugees, LGBT community, Indigenous youth. Tell me a little bit about why it's important in these areas with these particular groups as well. So that's a really great question. For me, I've gone sort of to random places based on being invited into them. Mm -hmm. So I also worked in Haiti uh, based on somebody I met at a conference, Dr. Carolyn Daniel in New York, who was like, oh, I'm working in Haiti. We need somebody doing HIV work after the earthquake. So I sort of ended up there. But something that, that connects all of the different communities I work with is um, intersectionality. So intersecting forms of stigma. So people don't just experience HIV stigma, they experience racism. Mm -hmm. And racism also is very uh, complex. So anti-black racism, I've worked a lot with African, Caribbean, and black communities in Canada. And also elsewhere, and then I've also worked a lot with indigenous communities who experience anti-indigenous racism. So a lot of the, the things connecting the, the communities I work with 
are being excluded from society. Mm -hmm. So working right now with uh, refugee, adolescents, and youth in Uganda, and Uganda is a wonderful example of how to welcome refugees. It hosts uh, over a million refugees, has very progressive refugee policies, yet still there's xenophobia in society, and still there's other barriers that people experience, such as language barriers, you know, just the different things that people experience that stop them from being full participants in society. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of the thread that connects a lot of the work I do. Um, In Jamaica, working with LGBTQ folks, they also experience barriers of homophobia and transphobia and then criminalization. So that's another sort of thread looks at how a lot of the communities I work with don't have full legal status or have precarious legal rights. Mm -hmm. So whether it's criminalization of HIV transmission in Canada and and many other countries, uh, people living with HIV can be charged uh, for not disclosing their status, even if they don't infect anybody. You know, sex workers and LGBTQ folks, and they're criminalized in many contexts I work in. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of interested in how inequalities stop people from reaching their full potential and opportunities and how those inequalities are embedded in society and in our laws. How on earth do you cope with all of this? How do you cope with that environment and the individuals that you're working so hard to support, but then you have to come bring that home with you? How do you separate the two? Usually I feel that when I'm working with communities, communities are the key, communities have the answers, communities have so much uh, agency. And so as long as I'm working with communities, I feel hopeful because Mm -hmm. I know that that's where the knowledge is of the strengths and the resources. So I think, you know, it's this, I was just, you know, reading about this and writing about this this morning. Um, A lot of times if we just focus on vulnerabilities or risks, uh, we forget how much power people have, especially mm-hmm. when people come together. So I think part of what makes me most excited is bringing that lens into the work because you're right, it can be very depressing. A lot of times work, not even intentionally, can be really deficits focused. It can be really problems focused. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's where my social work lens comes in and is like, actually... Let's look for the strengths and the hope. And, you know, I used to be a social worker. Right. And I, uh, before I really had any training, I was, I mean, I had a degree and a little bit of training, but I was a crisis counselor mm-hmm. uh, doing night shifts at Kids Help Phone. And something I was really, really good at, which I didn't even know at the time, was like solutions-focused therapy. Mm-hmm. I was doing it without even really knowing it, but like having um, the callers, the young people calling in, come up with, with, what gave them hope and what helped them get through the day. And that really kind of excites me. And I feel mm-hmm. like if I can bring that into my research, then I'm not saying some some days I'm not saddened or impacted mm-hmm. by the work, but I try to use that as fuel or to like do the next thing. So one of the projects I'm working on right now is in the second biggest refugee camp in the world in Northern Uganda. And a lot of our findings, we talk to young people and we talk to elders around sexual violence. And something that kept coming up again and again was um, girls are being uh, sexually assaulted while they're collecting water Mm. and firewood. And 
so now I'm working on something with the communities around better understanding what we can do about this issue around water and water security and, and fuel, like firewood, mm-hmm. and working with the communities to brainstorm like there's got to be some solutions here. Like everybody knows their their context and their community better than an outsider. But sometimes it takes in somebody just focusing solely on a sm- kind of a small issue, which you know can have a lot of ripples. Just to say, like, okay, let's you know, and then having resources too. So being in in Canada, a high in- income country, I try to like leverage as much as I resources as I can to redistribute because colonization has done the opposite. (laughs) So it's hard to like, how can we do work in communities that really just amplifies their expertise? Yes. And, you know, I see you as someone very passionate about what you do and very resourceful. And I love that you are willing to put that work in to fight for those who need this kind of support, especially when we're talking your basic needs. This is water and this is your community's daughters, sisters, mothers, right? It's heavy. Um, and it was, it's something that's so unexpected too, that I, I'm like, okay, you know, I didn't think I would be thinking so much about water and, but I am, I have another project with young people who are urban refugees in Kampala and we got, thanks to, you know, the government of Canada, uh, a COVID-19 um, C- Canadian Institute of Health Research Grant mm-hmm. to focus on preventing COVID-19 with urban refugees. Well, we know hand hygiene, being right. able to wash your hands is one of the biggest things that can help us stay, stay healthy from many, many infections. Exactly. But what happens when you have 2 billion people around the world who don't have access to enough water? So that's really been eye-opening just to think, wow, this is connected in one context to sexual violence experiences and another context to COVID prevention. Right. So sometimes it's about getting back to the basics. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, that you brought up COVID because you travel so much for your work and you have your hands in so many different projects. How has COVID affected the process for you and the work that you do? It's definitely been challenging you know, I feel grateful that I have a job mm-hmm. and I know, you know, my, my partner who's an artist, DJ, music producer, they're still unemployed people working in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. So I am grateful that, you know, I'm, I have a position that is stable, mm-hmm. so I don't want to complain too much, but it has been challenging because when you're doing community-based research and working with like really small grassroots agencies and trying to sort of build their research um, skills because they come with all these other skills about right. living and knowing the, the, in the context, it's been a bit challenging. We've had to be creative. So for example, the project I mentioned in the refugee settlement around violence, we were supposed to be making digital comics. So having young people come together mm-hmm. and make these digital comics around sexual violence prevention. Well, we haven't been able to do that because we can't really come together and we can't. So, so what we did was we, we worked with all the stories that we collected from the youth to create scenarios and to hire a comic artist to make a comic book with those in collaboration with folks. So, mm-hmm. you know, by Zoom, by email. I think maybe in, in Canada, we forget how easy it is 
to get a good internet connection. So, you know, I know in Canada, I'm on Zoom calls way too frequently, but Zoom actually, it, it, depending on your internet connection, right. isn't always the easiest way to connect with people. But so we, we just tried to, to pivot. Some things are on hold, like the work in Jamaica has been on hold for a little mm -hmm. while, working with young people living with HIV, young gay men. Um, so, you know, so some of the projects are on hold, others, you know, if they're COVID related, like the work in, in Uganda right now, we've been working really hard to, to try to plan for those to, to happen. But it's been a, you know, the work I do in the Northwest Territories too has been put on hold and we're just trying to rethink how do you do this community-based work, a lot of it in person with people with limited access to technology. You know, how do you do that? I mean, it's what we're trying to figure out. I think for some people, if you have access to a phone, no problem. Mm -hmm. If you have access to internet, no problem. But even in the North Northwest Territories, a lot of the young people we work with don't have very good internet. And they're tapped out. I mean, I think there's something you get from a physical connection, a social connection Absolutely. that's in person that is different than you get online. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the online connection. Of course, it's important and amazing. Mm -hmm. But there's just... Yeah, so we're just, we're figuring it out. We're trying to figure it out. <laughs> but that's uh, that's a massive challenge because, you know, it's been hard enough for a lot of people. For me, I'm not a Zoom person. I need one-on-one -on -one connection. Mm -hmm. So that's just in general. But in cases like this, it's essential, right? Connection is key, and that's a big part of what you do. People need that kind of uh, energy exchange and support, right? So is there any grants or things like that further helping you in your industry to kind of support this and find other ways around it? Or is there anyone else in your team that could be in these areas where there's a chance for people to actually, you know, connect one-on-one? -on -one? Well, it, it, it sort of like varies, I think, based on the way COVID is ebbing and flowing. Mm -hmm. So it has been a bit challenging and and for example in Uganda there was a a lockdown very different than the Toronto lockdown mm -hmm. so lockdown that was enforced by police and but more than isolating it was very hard for people who live day to day uh to make a living because people were selling things in the you know in the street markets and right. things like this and so when, when you're not allowed out on the street how do you how do you survive? And so the biggest, you know, feedback we got was people were more uh, hungry than usual. And when I say than usual, we had already found in our research that three quarters of people were experiencing food insecurity. Say so this is in, in the Uganda situation. And so now we're almost all of the people we're working with, we're experiencing not enough to eat. Mm -hmm. And this is also an issue in Canada. So we know in the Northwest Territories, a lot of the young people we work with experience food insecurity. The cost of food in the Northwest Territories is astounding and shameful. I saw somebody post something the other day, I think in Anuvik, and it was a, a platter of vegetables with $70. Canadian, wow. just you know those little plastic mm -hmm. platters, which are already overpriced. They're about twelve dollars. Yeah, normally right. twelve or fifteen dollars, right. seventy dollars. And I've been up, I've been up north many, many times, and I can attest that the cost of food is really high. And so we just have to think about the combination of social isolation with increased poverty, mm -hmm. and 
how that impacts mental health. So, you know, something else I've been talking a little bit about water, but also when people don't have enough food to eat, it's, it's also linked with, with depression and many different complex ways. So we have to think about how the ripple effects of COVID-19 are, are maybe amplifying social isolation and Mm -hmm. amplifying poverty among, among people who are already marginalized, you know, Exactly. And these are already things we have to work on. Now it's an additional load. So it's not just, you know, part of the work you're doing, all of the mental effects coming for uh, in the future, it's going to be a whole other thing to consider along with the food and the health. And if you're not active and eating well and social, it's very hard to keep going. We have many things to consider. That being said, you are, you're also doing a podcast right now called Everybody Hates Me. (laughs) Let's talk about stigma. I kind of want to understand where that's coming to, what it's connected to, and some of the responses you get in general with the work you do. You know, I know that there's, no matter what you do and how great it is, there's always the positive and the negative feedback. So if you'd like to share a little bit about that. Sure. So my partner was like, you can't have a boring title for your podcast. (laughs) That sounds boring (laughs) boring and academic. So she actually came up with that title. I love it. (laughs) And I was like, this is going to make people listen to you. I think she, it was originally going to be, why does everybody hate me? But anyways, everybody hates me is what stuck. Initially, it was going to be a, a documentary that I am working on with mm-hmm. Oya Media, which is going to look at different forms of stigma discrimination from the perspective of some people with, with ex- lived expertise. And because of COVID-19, we were supposed to be filming in March and June. <laughs> so, so we stopped filming, and I also had to come back from traveling. So I just somehow was like, well, if I can't make the documentary, maybe I can start some of these conversations mm-hmm. on the podcast. But what I wanted to do was expand the net of what we talk about with stigma, or at least what I talk about with stigma. So in addition to HIV, having racism, COVID mm-hmm. stigma, indigenous stigma, LGBT stigma, we're having folks, we talk about eating disorder stigma. So all different kinds of stigma you can think, drug use stigma. Mm-hmm. So. Everything we need to talk more and more about, it needs to become more comfortable. I think we think we're open to all of this, but not as much as we need to be and not enough to make a difference. That's why we need people like you kind of in the front lines oh. pushing these topics. It's so important, Carmen. Thank you so much. And and the most exciting part of the podcast is asking people how we can all be part of the change. And so every single podcast has people who are experts saying, here's some examples of what you can do. For the, whoever you are walking down the street, mm-hmm. listening to your podcast, walking your dog. <laughs> I love it. So before we say bye, can you give us some last words about what can we do to make change? I think one of the most interesting things I ask people for words of advice at the end of the podcast and so many people say embrace being uncomfortable and learn from that discomfort and so I'd say listen to something that you normally wouldn't listen to Mm -hmm. (laughs) watch a movie you normally wouldn't watch listen to music you wouldn't watch push yourself to feel a little bit of um, uncomfortableness if that's Mm -hmm. a word because that just shows that we, we need to keep opening our mind to new possibilities, new experiences, new people, without thinking that discomfort's a bad thing. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's just something. It's just a new exactly. feeling. So I feel like if we could all just open ourselves up to new experiences continually, whether that's trying a new type of fruit. I used yeah. to love going to Chinatown and just buying a fruit I didn't even ever try before. That's right. Just just to kind of keep pushing ourselves to grow and to be open, then I think, you know, I just think the world would be probably a better place. (laughs) I agree. Carmen, thank you so much for coming in and sharing with us. And guys, check out Carmen's podcast as well. Everybody hates me. Let's talk stigma. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. Anytime. And guys, let's go outside the box. Let's get uncomfortable and try (laughs) new things. And you know, do our best. And thank you all for listening. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at News and Arts. And we'll chat soon. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.